Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been reading 2 Corinthians together, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote because his relationship with that church in Corinth had taken a pretty bad hit. So he wrote this letter to foster and to deepen reconciliation with them. And if you've been with us, as we have read along, you might remember that the majority of the church now has, has shown an openness to Paul and a desire to be restored to him and a desire to see him again. It's been a source of uh, joy and of comfort for Paul. But there is still a minority at that church. And this minority uh, is made up of teachers who made their way to Corinth after Paul left, and they continue to undercut Paul, and they continue to throw his leadership and qualifications for leadership into question. So in chapters 10 through 13, Paul begins to address that situation directly, beginning with what we will read right now. So I'm going to read the beginning of chapter 10 for us. I'll read verses 1 through 11. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you'd be happy to use this word that, that we've just read and heard together, that we're going to think about and talk about for a few minutes, that you'd uh, be happy to use it to tear down any citadels or any strongholds that we have in our own hearts and minds against really knowing you that you'd be happy uh, to use this word to show us the grace of Jesus again, his beauty, his mercy, his gentleness, his power, his authority, so that we would see his grace and be changed by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, maybe some of you have uh, heard or been following this story about the uh, American bison that has been roaming around in the far northwest suburbs for about four and a half months. If you haven't, that is the story. There is an American bison that's wandering around in the far northwest suburbs. She escaped 
while she and her sister were being delivered to a farm in Wakanda. And since then, she has been sighted all over that area in uh, Volo and Crystal Lake and Cary and all of the points in between. The locals call her Billy. Somehow she has uh, tra uh, traversed the Fox River. She's been seen somehow on both sides of the Fox River. She hangs out in forest preserves and in farms. And she hangs out in people's yards, too. Um, they say that she has made friends with a donkey on a horse farm out there. You know, the, the donkey will hee-haw, and then she will grunt in response. And lately, her tracks indicate that she has found her way back to her sister. She regularly comes close to a fence that borders the farm where her sister is. But she is still free as of now. <laughs> they are trying to lure her home with molasses-sweetened food. It is a, a fun story, and I think it's a pretty amazing story. I mean, we hold all of the knowledge uh, in the world <laughs> in these little devices that we have in our pockets. And we, we have just put a huge observatory into orbit in perfectly using the gravity of the Earth and the sun to stay in a perfect orbit. You know, we got billionaires flying around in rockets, but we are now at four and a half plus months of trying to get an animal to walk through a gate. <laughs> I love it. And if you have ever seen an American bison up close, then you know exactly why we're at four and a half months plus. It is one word, power. <laughs> Those things are magnificently and frighteningly powerful. 950 pounds of muscle and free will. She will do as she pleases, and she will do it when she pleases. And that is some real power. And the presence of real, tangible power runs through that part of the letter that we just read together. Paul writes to his friends about weapons of divine power to destroy strongholds and bring down citadels. He writes about the authority that he has been given and about the confidence that he has to use it. And maybe you notice that as we read, Paul is clearly amped up. He is clearly laser focused on a particular outcome for his friends. He is moving now with the force of a freight train. And church, I'm telling you, it does not slow down until the last stroke of his pen in chapter 13. You cannot miss it. Which makes the way that he sets up the whole discussion all the more remarkable. This is how he sets the whole thing up. I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And maybe that sounds unexpected. You know, like, like the meekness and gentleness of Christ don't exactly sit well with expressions of power and freight train-like authority. And what I'd like to suggest to us this morning is that perhaps uh, the degree to which that sounds unexpected to me and you may also be the degree to which we need a bigger or different picture of Jesus and of what power and authority are and of what power and authority are for. And I don't just mean Jesus' power and Jesus' authority or Paul's power and authority. 
I mean ours too. So Paul begins, I, Paul, myself entreat you. And that is a definite shift in tone. Up until this point in the letter, Paul has usually referred to himself as part of a larger group, part of this group of people that are working together on behalf of the Corinthians and other churches. He's used phrases like, our hope for you is unshaken, and you are our letters of recommendation, and we have spoken freely to you, and make room in your hearts for us. But now, Paul is talking about himself. He makes it very clear. He wants them to know this is about him, and this is about them, and it's about their relationship. He is the one that has suffered wounds, and they are the ones who can care for him. And in caring for him, they will care for themselves too. And so he entreats them, like we saw, by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Now there are, of course, places, a couple places in the Gospels where Jesus either refers to himself or is referred to in similar ways. I think, of course, of his teaching in Matthew 11 where he invites people to come to him for rest. And he says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. And then there's that time where he's about ready to enter into Jerusalem and triumph. And he tells his disciples to get a donkey for him to ride in on. That is a deeply symbolic action. And just to make sure we don't miss the point, the gospel writer Matthew quotes the prophet Zechariah. Behold, your king is coming to you humble. But Paul's use of Jesus' meekness and gentleness, the, when he invokes uh, Jesus' gentleness and meekness, it's not really about one or two places in the Gospels where Jesus is referred to in that way. It's about his whole life. It's about Jesus' whole way of being. And we will really miss the point if we read meekness and gentleness as timidity or fear or hesitation or speaking quietly or something like that. I mean, I know that that's how it's come to be connoted in our culture. Those words, meekness and gentleness, often mean those things. But in Greek literature, meekness was really part of this whole family of words that pointed to the opposite of roughness and the opposite of severity and rage and vengeance. Meekness and gentleness were in this whole family of words that referred to someone's ability to be able to calmly soothe the situation, to have a steady, quiet disposition, and to make allowances, costly allowances, to even pardon people when the facts on the ground would normally make everyone else lose their minds. That's not weakness, and that's not timidity. That is incredible power. Power that can be used to heal. Power that can be used to restore. Power that can be used to make new and unexpected things happen. I mean, just think of the gospel lesson that we heard a couple of minutes ago. Everyone is hanging out, having dinner at Simon the leper's house. And this woman comes in and she pours out a fortune on Jesus' head. And all of the guys that are sitting around the table see this thing that's so lavish and that's so over the top, and their response is this kind of indignant scolding. Well, if there's anyone in that room who knows he's worth it, it's Jesus. 
but he doesn't rage against those guys in that room, and he doesn't rage against the situation that's in front of them. He looks at them and with three words, he stops it all in their tracks, and he honors this woman forever. Leave her alone. That's what he says, and it's over. Great power and great authority directed not towards self-aggrandizement or self-promotion. Great power that is not directed towards control, but towards love. Power harnessed to love. That is Jesus' meekness and gentleness. He does it over and over again. I mean, this is pretty much what every miracle that he ever does is all pointing towards. It's what it shows. The disciples, they're, you know, losing their minds. They're getting tossed around in this boat on a horrible storm. And Jesus doesn't make fun of them for being afraid. He doesn't do some elaborate, showy ritual. He just looks out at it and says, peace, be still. And it's over. It's like glass on that water. Sometimes, you know, when he would heal people, he would even tell them to keep it to themselves. Talitha Kumi, he says to the little girl. And she wakes up from the dead, church. She wakes up from the dead. And what does he say? Don't tell anybody. Just give her something to eat. She's probably hungry. Terrifying power. Harnessed to love. Pilate standing there pulling his hair out, trying to figure out why is Jesus standing in front of me and why are all of these people calling out for his blood? Well, are are you the king of the Jews, he asked Jesus. And Jesus doesn't rage at him and he doesn't rage at the people. He doesn't put this small man in his place. He doesn't call down a legion of angels to flatten the palace. For love. And so that he can love his own to the end, he quietly looks at Pilate and says, you have said so. The meekness and gentleness of Jesus. Immense, terrifying power harnessed toward love, even though it will cost him. Now I know that you and I We don't have power like that. (laughs) But if we follow Jesus in faith and repentance, we are connected to the one who has power that's like that. And we have a spirit in us, and his spirit works overtime in us to make us look like him. And he has given all of us, every one of us in here, gifts and talents and abilities. The mix of those gifts and talents and abilities are unique to each of us. They are tailored to each of us. God has situated us around people. He's situated us in situations and circumstances like jobs and vocations and families and friendships that allow us, really, that beg us to use that unique tailored set of gifts and and power and influence and responsibility that we have. And I just want to say that those who follow Jesus know, and we know without a doubt, that all of that stuff has been given to us. Any power that we might have or any gift that we might have, any influence that we might have, we know without a doubt that it has been given to us to be directed towards love. 
harnessed to the end of love. Love of God and, and love of neighbor. You know, culturally, I know that we are encouraged in a million different ways. Some of them are subtle and some of them are not very subtle at all. To use what we have for our own good. To make our own names great. To make the name of our tribe great. But the meekness and gentleness of our elder brother Jesus points us in a very different direction, doesn't it? He leads us to follow him into very different places, doesn't he? And his grace, church, believe me, his grace makes it possible for us to actually follow him there. It's what we were made for. Power directed towards love. And this is what Paul is invoking with his friends. This is how he starts the whole thing out. I, he says, I, you know me, the guy who's humble when he's with you, <laughs> but bold towards you when I'm away. <laughs> I mean, that's the accusation. That's one of the accusations that's been made against him by these teachers who had come to Corinth. In verse 10, he just quotes these guys directly. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. <laughs> we'll talk more about that in a minute, but assuming that this accusation is broadly true, and there is no reason to think that it isn't broadly true, I want you to hear the irony of Paul's request to his friends. I beg you, I beg you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I think I'm going to have to show. I beg you to not make me do it. He hopes that they will reject the influence and they will reject the arguments of these other teachers based on what he's writing right now so that he doesn't have to come and do anything in person. And there's a lot to untangle in that. But the first thing I want us to hear is the irony of it, that Paul is begging his friends to let the accusations that have been hurled to him actually be true. <laughs> I hope I can show up humble, he says. I hope that when I come, I can come with my famously weak bodily presence. I hope that I can come in meekness and gentleness. And if it makes me look like a dope to some people, then great. Because it will mean that I have been a dope for you and for your good. He says that clearly in verse 8 when he says that the authority that has been given to him by God is for building his friends up. Not for tearing them down. That is power harnessed towards love. So the backstory of this whole thing, we, we talked about it a bunch in the fall, but it's good for us to loop back to it and be reminded of what's going on. The basic drift is that Paul's accusers are itinerant teachers who've come to Corinth with tons of cultural street cred. They have all the right letters of recommendation from all of the right people. They have come back by wealthy patrons, powerful patrons. They're skilled public speakers. They've been trained in the latest and best public rhetoric. And they seem to live lives that just kind of floated above everybody else. They were carefully cultivated and beautiful influencers. And Paul is just Paul. Come to Corinth back by nobody. 
talking about the cross all the time. Talking about suffering way too much, way too much. To top it all off, this guy lets himself get pushed around all of the time. He's always in some terrible situation like prison or a shipwreck or getting beaten up. He works a side job, for goodness sakes, and he's terrible at public speaking. Sometimes he looks like he's barely holding it together, struck down, afflicted, perplexed. He isn't very glorious. Truth be told, this guy is weak. And so the argument went, he's not qualified to represent Jesus or lead anyone. And you know, you know what's beautiful? Is that Paul contests none of those facts about his weakness and suffering and trouble. <laughs> it's all true. He's like, kid, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> if I told you the trouble, all of the trouble that I've been in, you'd never believe it. It's all true. But the thing that he cannot abide and the thing that he will not abide, the thing that he will fight against until it takes his very last breath out of him is the conclusion that his weakness and that his trouble and that his suffering disqualifies him or anyone else from representing Jesus. He won't abide that. In fact, Paul says it's the opposite. It's the opposite that's true. Our suffering and our, and our weakness and our trouble, they don't disqualify us because these are the places where the glory and grace of God are actually seen most clearly in this broken world. Because these are the places in, in your life and in my life where the lingering fragrance of Jesus' life given for the life of the world is apprehended. <laughs> he was struck down. He was afflicted. He was weak for the life of the world. And out of that apparent defeat, God works resurrection and forgiveness and new life and new creation. So Paul has been saying, listen, when we endure faithfully in suffering and in trouble and in weakness, we are actually eloquent witnesses to God's love and grace and saving power. Like he wrote back in chapter 4, we always bear in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For Paul... This isn't anything to be ashamed about. It's something to celebrate as long as we have voices till we croak it out on our deathbeds. This is what we celebrate. And as it turns out, this is something Paul's willing to fight for too. Even if it makes him act a fool, which it will, even if it makes him do the last thing that he would ever want to do, and that is to visit his friends with the gloves off. And so that's why he uses all of those war images in verses 4 through 6. It seems jarring to us, but he's using the language of a Roman siege. He's using the language of big walls and citadels and battering rams and catapults and taking prisoners, all of this would have been very familiar to his friends. The weapons of our warfare, he says, have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy every 
lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, we destroy the highest citadel if it will get in between people and knowing God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul employs all of this language because it is that important to him. Because what's going on at Corinth has the real power and the real potential, as he puts it, to stand against the knowledge of God, to keep people from knowing who God really is. Because, and it's a very simple line of reasoning, (laughs) if you say weakness and suffering and trouble are disqualifiers, then you are saying that Jesus and his cross are disqualified. If you say that meekness and gentleness disqualify you, then Jesus is disqualified. And if by extension you're saying that skill and eloquence and this cultivated, powerful, influential presence is what makes a person qualified to represent Jesus, then you are obscuring Jesus and his cross behind your own image. You're making it harder for people to see who he really is. So Paul won't have it. He won't have it because he has come to believe and he has come to know that the lingering fragrance of Jesus' life given for the life of the world is most clearly seen in those who faithfully endure weakness and trouble and suffering. These things help people see him. They point to Jesus. Jesus who used his immense, frightening, terrifying power and harnessed it for love, even when it cost him everything. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you'd uh, be happy to use whatever means uh, that you have for people like us to, to tear down all strongholds and all our clowny citadels that we have set up in our brains that make us stand in the way of showing people who you really are and what you're really like. Father, would you use the the work of your spirit and our worship and our participation in the life and the sacraments of the church and our spiritual disciplines, use whatever it is that you have, Father, so that we could be a people who follow Jesus directly where he led. Father, do this so that we'll grow up in our faith and, and do this so that through us you can love this broken world. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.